0: Mark chapter twelve verses thirteen through seventeen. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar, or not? Shall we pay, or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at it. They brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, "Render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's." And they were amazed at him. Good afternoon. It is once again a blessing to be together, to be able to spend some time with one another singing songs of praise to God, and we're thankful for another opportunity to look and examine at God's Word. Uh, As we began earlier this year, trying to do this about once a quarter, uh, address some of your questions. Uh, I think that's always a beneficial thing to stop and do sometimes, is to look at some of the things that you might have questions or concerns about, uh, especially regarding God's Word and spiritual matters. And uh, I, was, I didn't get to address all the questions I got back at the beginning of the year and continue to uh, get more questions. And so I've got plenty of questions right now to address. We, I hope to address as many of them as possible tonight. Uh, so I hope that you will bear with me as we look at several different things. Uh, what if you are a little sporadic in your thinking, you might like this kind of uh, outlet because there's no real form or flow to this. It's just kind of, well, address this question and then this question and then this question. Uh, there's not really a logical progression or anything in terms of the questions that are received. But I hope that you will take out God's word and study along with us and what the passage that we looked at in our scripture reading in Mark chapter twelve, what fascinates me about this passage of scripture is that Jesus is asked questions uh, as the uh, Jews that they, they come to him and they are asking him some things. They are testing him, and they uh, ask a question: Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? They have a question that Jesus is going to address and answer. Now, they weren't doing it necessarily out of sincerity. They were trying to entrap Jesus. And Jesus answers that and addresses that by asking a question. Why are you testing me? Sometimes questions can be asked in return uh, because if if it's a trap. Uh, if you are ever asked a question, men, you know... If your wives ever asked that question, you know, does this make me look fat? You know, maybe you respond to the question or something like that. That might be a way of getting out of that. I don't know. Uh, thankfully, my wife has never put me in that position. So thank you. <laughs> uh, nevertheless, uh, got a question. <clears throat> and since he's not here tonight, I'm going to embarrass him a little bit. This was, re- I got this question from my son. He put a question in the box, so I felt like I had to answer this question. Uh, Funny enough, he's not here tonight. He's with his grandparents, but I did answer this for him uh, in person. But why does God put the goats on the left and the sheep on the right? What does that really mean? In Matthew chapter 25, in that great judgment day scene, when the Son of Man is... In in his glory and all the angels around him, Jesus is sitting on the throne. It says in Matthew chapter twenty-five and verse thirty-two, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And what is interesting is if you go back and you look at some of the idolatrous practices, especially among the Canaanites, that. The shape uh, and animals that they might uh, worship in their gods or their idols were fashioned after goats. Actually, uh, Satan is still in many art forms. uh, Satan is actually still pictured as a man with a goat's head in cartoons, costumes, movies, etc. Uh, And Satan worshippers still use the image of a goat. Uh, so, to uh, I feel like that's an interesting background there, and then even in the Greeks, among the Greek philosophers and their mythology, Pan, uh, one of the idols and gods uh, of Greek mythology, is pictured as a half goat and half man. The bottom uh, half of his body is is like a goat, and so I find that fascinating. That. You have that kind of in the background here, perhaps, to what is going on and why Jesus chooses to use this. But perhaps uh, maybe a little bit more uh, practical or the first thing that we should look at and just notice are the differences between sheep and goats. And sheep are a lot more easily led and dependent on leadership, on a shepherd. Goats are much more independent, persistent, stubborn, and headstrong, and so they share a lot of similarities. But their nature seems to be a little bit different in that you have sheep who are more willing to be uh, to follow, and goats are kind of kicking uh, against that, and they are a little resist, a little more resistant. And so goats and sheep. They might graze and herd together, but goats can end up becoming more aggressive and even though they may become somewhat domesticated, they more quickly revert to that wild and untamed state. Thus, the need to be separated from the sheep. And so when Jesus is here discussing the judgment day scene when He is sitting on the throne and how He is going to separate the sheep from the goats... He, I believe, is using some symbolic language here to describe the necessity of separating God's people, who are represented by sheep, those who are submitting and following God's law and Christ's teaching, that and they need to be separated from an evil influence in the world that the goats would represent here, and so. Um, uh, I really enjoyed this uh, uh, this study. I, I One resource that I might point you towards, I don't know, I forget the name of the book now, but I, I borrowed it from Lisa, uh, and I can check on it later, but uh, her brother, Warren Berkeley, put together a book on different animals of the Bible, and he was an editor in that and had different... Uh, Gospel preachers and elders and teachers among the Lord's people contribute and write a chapter on that book. And so, if that's something that might interest you, uh, I would point you in that direction. She might be able to tell you where to buy it. I borrowed it from her. Uh, So, anyway, um, I knew that he had done that. And so, that's where I got some of this material. So, that might be something that is of interest to some of you. Another question I got was why can't we see God's face? And what you see in Scripture is that seeing God's face is associated with death. In the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 32, in Genesis the 32nd chapter, and in verse 30, whenever Jacob is wrestling with God, he says in verse 30, so Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, Yet my life has been preserved. In the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 32, Moses, uh, as he was upon the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he was receiving the, the law and he was communing with God. In Exodus chapter 32 and in verse 17, there on that occasion, it says that, now when Joshua heard the sound of the people, As they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a sound of war in the camp, but he said, It is not the sound of the cry or triumph, uh, nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. And as they were talking about the things that were going on down at the camp, it says, uh, Am I at the right place? I think it's chapter, maybe that should be. Let me see. You'll excuse me just a moment. I have chapter 32 there. Let me go back. This might be where my fat fingers did not help me any. Chapter 33. Chapter 33. When Moses is there on the mountain... And he says uh, in verse 12, Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you also uh, have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people is not your by your going with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. And so Moses then says in verse 18, I pray you, show me your glory. And he says in verse 19, and he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses wants to see God's glory as he wants to have that stamp of approval of knowing we're certain that he and the children of Israel are God's people. He wants to see God. He wants to see His glory. And I think that's an important thing to recognize here. Seeing God's face is associated with seeing God's ultimate and complete glory. And that is something that cannot be fathomed. We'll address that here a little further as we continue on. But in the book of Judges, a couple of times, the angel of the Lord appears once to Gideon and then also to Manoah. And on both of those occasions, they both remark that they have seen God and His angel and they have lived. And so, seeing God's face is associated with death. Now, interestingly, here on these occasions, uh, these people were exceptions to that rule. They are exceptions to that rule, but there is the principle that if you saw God in His face, then you would die. I think there's also a practical element whenever you think about God's glory, and it's sometimes hard to describe what glory and what God's glory is But I think Paul does a pretty good job of trying to define that concept for us in 1 Timothy chapter 6. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and in verse 16, Paul says here as he's describing Jesus Christ and God and His glory and His sovereignty, he says in verse 16, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. That God's existence, his being, his glory is in this unapproachable light. That if you if you can imagine just the brightest light you've ever seen, then just magnify it by a whole lot. (laughs) That's the fullness of God's glory and his majesty. And God dwells in that. That's his existence. And so you could not see God. You think about the Apostle Paul. Whenever he saw the risen Lord, he was blinded by light. The light that God dwells in, it would be blinding. And so we cannot see God's face because it's humanly impossible for the eye to behold that. And all the exceptions that we saw, God had to change His form in some way. He had to appear in either an angelic form or a human form. But they all recognized and confessed that it was God whom they were speaking with. But Moses, he got to see God's backside. The backside of God's glory, if you will. And so he that, that's the closest that anyone has come. Until you come to the New Testament... And in John chapter 1, in the description of Jesus, in John chapter 1 and in verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John would later say in verse 14 that the word became flesh. So God became a man. He changed his mode of being and his existence like once again for the purpose to reveal to us the Father. In verse 18 of John chapter 1, no one has seen God at any time. That is, this fullness of God in all His glory. No one has seen that. Only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him or revealed Him. Now one of the things that Jesus does is He shows us who God is. And that while we cannot possibly see God's face, and we can't comprehend His full glory or even fathom that, Jesus came to earth as a man to teach us and to show us and to point us the way into God. And so... We cannot see God's face because of all the glory that He is. To see Him would be death. But thankfully, Jesus came in the appearance as a man to show us what God is and His character, His nature, and His love and the grace that He has for us. Another question that I received is can a Christian vote for a Democrat they know believes and supports abortion? And I want to be very unequivocal in this statement that life begins in the womb. That's not a political opinion. That's not a political opinion. Life begins in the womb. It's not a political slogan. The Bible teaches this very clearly. And these passages, I think, all point us in the direction to that conclusion. Paul says that God had chosen him as an apostle set him apart while he was still in the womb. Jeremiah says that he was chosen... Uh, or God actually tells Jeremiah that I've chosen you while he was formed in the womb. That, then in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 1, in Luke chapter 1, when I think this is perhaps the strongest biblical evidence that life is in the womb, in Luke chapter 1, whenever Mary has found out that she is with child with Jesus, and she goes to her cousin Elizabeth to see her, who is also a child with John the Immerser. In Luke chapter 1 and in verse 42, it says, "...and she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb." How do you bless the, something that's just a blob of cells if, if that's not life? There's life in the womb. That's the point. And then if you continue on in verse 43, and how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Notice that Mary is already described as a mother before she's ever given birth. That's something I sometimes like to kid around a little bit whenever I know of a couple that uh, is pregnant. And maybe it's around Mother's Day or Father's Day. I like to always try to say Happy Mother's Day or Happy Father's Day to them. And they're always like, I don't have a kid yet. You know, Yeah, you're, you're a mother. You're a father. You may not have the child in your arms yet, but you're a mother. You're a father. I think that's very strong biblical evidence that life exists in the womb. That here you have two... Pregnant women who are acknowledging the life that is within their womb. Elizabeth's baby in Luke chapter 1 and verse 41, John, he leaped in the womb when Mary came. In verse 44, as Elizabeth says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby... Leaped in my womb for joy. It's very clear that this that life is here in the womb, and when the timing of all of this is really important as well. In Luke chapter one, in verse thirty six, says, and behold, even your relative Elizabeth also has conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. So she is at the end of the second trimester and Mary was starting her pregnancy being in the first trimester. And so likely all of this was taking place in the very first month of Mary's pregnancy. Life was in the womb in the very first month. Job's take on life in in the book of Job in Job chapter 10, I love the description here that Job uses in Job chapter 10 and in verse 18. In Job chapter 10 and verses 18 and 19, he says, Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I have died and no eye had seen me? I should not have been as though I had not been carried from womb to tomb. If you want to know when life begins and when life ends, womb to tomb. Remember that phrase. It's a Bible phrase. Life begins in the womb. There are other passages that we could stop and consider tonight here in the that might be on the screen. You might want to jot some of these things down. But in Psalm 139, David praises God, you have woven me in my mother's womb. That's not scientific language. I acknowledge that. The Bible is not a science textbook. I think we need to acknowledge that. But it recognizes that life is in the womb, the substance of life coming together to be formed inside the womb. When an egg and a sperm are fertilized and implanted in the uterine wall, a heartbeat that can be detected by the 18th day, typically. That means that there is blood being pumped to the fetus and baby. The Bible doesn't use all those scientific terms that we might be able to use, but it describes it in a very poetic fashion that life is there. And while... The law of Moses would hold someone accountable that if a pregnant woman was injured and the life of the child was lost, that person would be held accountable. So I want to be very emphatic in that this statement. Life begins in the womb. That's not a political opinion. And anyone who denies that life begins in the womb is biblically wrong. If you deny that, then you're denying God's Word. That wasn't what the question was, if you noticed that. You might say I'm filibustering a little bit. Because the question was, can a Christian vote for a Democrat they know, believes, and supports abortion? Righteousness exalts a nation. Look at Proverbs teaches us that. And if you disagree with anything I say here, then just hold on because I'm probably going to make someone else mad too. (laughs) Neither political party has a monopoly on righteousness or wickedness. Republican or Democrat or in between. And up until 2018, there was a political action committee called Republican Majority for Choice. That is, they were pro-choice on the issue of abortion. There's also a group in fairness to to try to be fair, there's a group called Democrats for Life of America that are pro-life. And I could give you my personal opinion on the matter, but I don't think that's what is being asked. I want to try to answer from a biblical perspective. And righteousness is what exalts a nation. And if we are depending on a political party or government, then we're going to be severely disappointed. Because I can tell you that I would be disappointed in any anyone who would be pro-choice. That's a personal opinion. And as a Christian, when it comes to voting, we probably find it very difficult to vote from time to time because of all the gross immorality that is out there. Presidents have been caught in extramarital affairs. Some presidents have been in second or third marriages. Some presidents and congressmen will lie under the guise of political correctness. Politicians will lie to protect national security interests to keep panic at bay. And that works on both sides of the aisle. And as I was researching some of this, there was... At political action committee called Republican Majority for Choice, that I was looking into that, and that has since shut down. But there were three Republicans in the House of Representatives who received funds from that PAC. And interestingly, Kansas's own Lynn Jenkins... Uh, received some funds from that uh, group. And I don't know her, I don't know much about her voting record, but she did receive some political funds from that political action committee. And I point this out just to say that as politics can be murky business, we would like to think of things as very black and white, And sadly, that's not how things go most often. I think what we have to do is we have to do our very best to vote for what we feel is right. Someone who is going to blatantly support immorality. I don't see how we can, in good conscience, vote for that person. And... Something that we might have to also recognize is that if you feel that there is no one worthy of your vote, then don't offend your conscience by voting for them. Anyone who supports what is blatantly immoral, gay marriage, transgenderism, legalized murder through abortion, we need to ask ourselves if that is promoting righteousness in our nation. If you feel feel that the answer is yes, vote for them. If you feel the answer is no, don't pull the lever for that person. Because politics can be a very ugly business. I think it's been observed that in our election system, during primaries you vote for the person that you want to win, and during the general election you might have to vote against the person you want to lose. That's probably good advice that I've received. What I know is that politics, while it can be divisive, Jesus, think about this, chose Simon the Zealot who was intent on overthrowing the Roman Empire. He chose Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, a Jew who was working for Rome. He chose those two men to be his disciples. And somehow, two very different politically minded people came to work for Jesus as apostles in the kingdom of God. And what we all have to be willing to do is set aside political allegiance to be faithful for the kingdom of God's sake. The kingdom of God is more important than loyalty to any political party. We have to recognize that. We have to be willing to set aside political differences for the sake of God's kingdom. We have to stand for what's right. We need to vote for what's right. We need to seek to do what is good for the sake of this nation. But that may not always be as black and white as we might like for it to be. So now that we have stepped on everyone's toes, and I think I saw some looks like, oh my, is he about to answer this question? <laughs> Got another question that was uh, about our worship services. Is it disrespectful to not be prepared for the main worship and have to leave the auditorium during worship? And there, along with this, there were some other sub questions that were regarding going to the bathroom, leaving the auditorium, and things like that, probably in a very distracting and disorderly way. And I think it's important for us to know that. Our worship assembly, our time together, is really important. And I look at examples in the Old Testament when God commanded the children of Israel to gather together to come to worship and to hear God's word. In Exodus chapter 19, you see that God expected the children of Israel to prepare themselves and to be ready to worship. In Exodus chapter 19 and in verse 10, The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So imagine that in our terms, that the Lord's Day on Sunday is when we're going to come worship and you spend three days preparing for that. Imagine that. Imagine that you started preparing to come to church on Thursday or Friday. That's how important our worship assembly is. And being prepared as they were told to get to wash their garments, clean themselves up, take a bath, come in clean clothes. I think that's a really good example for us to look to. And in a in an assembly with a mixture of group of people such as the children of Israel had in Deuteronomy chapter 31 as Moses had assembled Israel together he told them assemble the people the men and the women and children, and the alien who is in your town, so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of the law. That everyone was supposed to be in that assembly. And of course, children, they come with their own set of distractions. (laughs) And... We as parents, we have to be vigilant. We have to be watchful. And we have to train our children. And I think, I know I will admit this for myself, that I'm not perfect. I miss things. There are things I don't see. I might have blind spots that I might need someone to say, hey, Sean, you're missing this. And it might take a few times before... I really start to see and grasp the problem. I can be a little thick headed sometimes. So, we need to have patience and forbearance when we are discussing this issue. Trips to the restroom should not be for the purpose of playing. We need to be careful about that. Parents need to be watchful about. How many times are our kids taking a trip to the bathroom? That kind of thing. However, we also need to recognize that there may be children who have some sensitive tummies and need to make more frequent trips to the bathroom. There may be kids who are potty training. and that's, That can be tough, and that has its own set of complications. So even with all the distractions that there are, we have to be very careful. And just from a practical standpoint, if you are sitting near distractions, then perhaps you might consider moving up to the front, the dreaded front. I know people don't like sitting at the front of the building, but if there are distractions that are in front of you, maybe if you can get in front of the distraction, that would help. But in James, the second chapter, in James chapter 2, I think this is a principle that helps us see how we ought to conduct ourselves in the assembly when we come together in James chapter 2. James says, as he's dealing with this issue of partiality and showing favoritism, he gives this analogy in verse 2, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? And while he's talking about dress and I think dealing with issues of being rich and poor and giving preference to those who are rich, in the assembly, I think there's a principle, an overarching principle here that in the assembly, we need to be careful about judging others. And also, while we're in the assembly, what we have to do, the first place I have to look at is myself. I have to make sure that I have come here to be prepared and to properly worship God. I have to look inwardly first and foremost. I think that's what James is trying to get us to see. A second biblical principle that I think needs to be brought up is that if there is a problem or concern that you're observing, then go to the parents and talk to them. I think most parents, while some might get defensive, I think most parents would actually be glad that you brought something to their attention. I know I would be. Um, (laughs) I'm glad you mentioned to me that Zeke was climbing on the car the other day. (laughs) Zeke was climbing on top of a van. If you know Zeke, then none of them, you're not surprised. Uh, I was glad that that was brought to my attention because I was inside and visiting and then Zeke is outside climbing on top of the Boyd's van. At least it's the Boyd's van, not mine. But most parents, I think, are going to be very thankful you bring something to their attention. Do so in a spirit of gentleness and kindness. Also, I want to extend just a word of caution that we don't want with these kinds of questions that might be addressing something that we have seen in the worship service that probably seems very obvious to us as a problem. Maybe it isn't so obvious to other people, and so we don't want these Q&A nights to become a method uh, for avoiding going to someone when we see a problem. The purpose is to ask these biblical questions and receive helpful biblical instructions and know how we can manage some of these difficult situations. I think that's something that warrants our consideration as well. One final question for us to think about tonight found in uh, here in the book of Acts in the 17th chapter, if you want to be turning to this passage in Acts chapter 17 and in verse 30. This is in Paul's sermon to the Areopagus in the city of Athens. Before that, city council in Acts chapter 17 and in verse 30. question is, what does Paul mean when he said God overlooked these times of ignorance? What extent did God overlook them? It says there in Acts chapter 17 and verse 30, a passage I'm sure we are familiar with. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. I'll continue on in verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead paul was preaching here in athens and he was preaching to them about god the god that they did not know you'll remember that these people they were so ingrained into idolatry that they had this idol that was with the inscription to the unknown god that this is just how far their idolatry had taken them and israel Israel was the nation through whom the Messiah would come and for that privileged position Israel was supposed to become an example for the gentiles. In Acts chapter 13 in Acts chapter 13 and in verse 47 we see there that it said for the so the Lord has commanded us I have placed you as a light for the gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. The end of the earth is not that there's a flat earth and that there's a literal end to the earth. It is about the Gentiles. It's language describing Gentiles. It's a people group. And Israel was supposed to be this light to the Gentiles. To be an example to them. And you think about the ignorance that the people of Athens had. Obviously, the nation of Israel adopted more idolatrous practices than they helped other nations. And so, prior to the coming of the Messiah, God permitted ignorance and vain worship through idolatry. Not that He accepted it, but He allowed it to happen. He never commanded it, but He... Was not going to necessarily just cast people off. He was very slow in his anger. Uh, In Acts chapter 14, in Acts the 14th chapter, and in verse 15, this is another sermon that Paul was preaching where he was actually uh, called Hermes, one of the Greek. Uh, God's and Barnabas was called Zeus in Acts chapter 14 and in verse 15 it says and saying men why are you doing these things we are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them that idolatry is just vanity God has provided you with blessings In verse 17, and yet He did not leave Himself without witness, and that He did good, and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That God gave evidence that He was kind to them, and that they should see who God is. And while God allowed idolatrous nations to go their own way and to practice their idolatry, He never just fully wiped them out necessarily for a time. Until the Messiah would come. And I think that's the thing that Paul is really trying to emphasize here in Acts chapter 17. That God overlooked idolatry for a while. Until Jesus came. When the Gospel was announced then Jesus has been appointed to judge the world in righteousness. That's why Jesus would come. And so, this overlooking that God has, it was not that He was just turning a blind eye, but that He was long-suffering. He was... Being long-suffering in all of the sins that were before them, but now Paul is saying the times of ignorance and God's overlooking and the delay in punishment for idolatry that is over. Ignorance of the one true God is no longer going to be a delay in punishment. That's Paul's point. Jesus Christ is King. And He has come. And He is the one whom all nations must submit to and obey. Everyone must repent. Everyone will stand before God in judgment. I actually did receive one more question that I think is important for us to answer before we leave. Someone did ask this question. You might remember that at the end of our last question and answer, I ended with this question. I anticipated it, but then someone did actually ask this. What do I need to do to become a Christian? And what we need to see is that God graciously gave His Son His only begotten Son as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And we need to believe in Jesus Christ. We need to believe that He is King and that He is Lord. We need to believe that He died for our sins. And we need to be willing to confess that. We need to be willing to confess that publicly. That we believe Jesus is the Son of God who died for me. And then we have to be committed to repenting of our sins. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And if we do not repent of our sins, if we choose to remain in our sin, then we are choosing condemnation and an eternity away from the presence of God. We need to turn from our sins. We need to get out of sin and we need to come to God. Seeking His mercy and seeking His forgiveness. We need to be baptized. Being buried with Christ in baptism. Being raised to walk in newness of life. That is how we are saved. And that is how we become a Christian. A couple of my favorite verses are found in the book of Acts in chapter 18 when describing the conversion of the Corinthians. It says early on in that chapter, and many of the Corinthians when they heard were believing and being baptized. always felt like if there was a a good verse right there to turn to, that that's it. Because we need to hear the Gospel, we need to believe the Gospel, and then we need to be baptized. Right there in one single verse. And then later on as you continue reading that chapter, you read about Apollos a little bit and how he comes to the Corinthians and says, and he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. I think these, these verses show us that when we hear the Gospel and when we're obedient to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, when we are baptized in water and we have our sins washed away, we are trusting in God's saving grace. And so this evening, if you are not yet a Christian, we want you to become a child of God. We want you to be saved. If you need to come tonight to the waters of baptism, the waters are ready, we are we're willing to help you Come to Christ. If you're willing to name Him and confess your faith in Him. And tonight, if you are a child of God who's been unfaithful and you've left the Lord and you've not been serving Him as you ought to, then we want to encourage you to come back. God is merciful. God is gracious and He's willing and ready to extend His mercy and His forgiveness to you. If you would come to him come tonight as we stand and as we sing